Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Today, I am here with Michael Schnabel, and he has quite a story to share with us. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you. Absolutely. So can you take us back to the beginning of where this particular story started? Certainly. It was uh, about 17 years ago. My daughter was uh, 27 years old at the time, pregnant with uh, her only child. And she started having some difficulty in the second and third trimester. Uh, we really couldn't do the testing that was needed to find out what was going on because uh, she was concerned about the baby and uh, maybe getting her put into labor. So we were able to take the baby a little bit early and uh, had a healthy, wonderful, loving little boy. And then uh, we were so excited. It was our first grandchild, our only grandchild, and we were just on top of the world. Two weeks later, then we were able to do some of the other studies and some of the other procedures, and we found out that she had stage four colon cancer. Wow. And uh, it was an unusual type. Um, they said it's like looking across uh, shag carpeting. There were thousands and thousands of polyps and uh, several masses. And uh, something that the uh, GI doc said that he only sees in textbooks. Uh, and may I they stop gave you there? her the statistics. I'm going to stop you there. Sure, please. So, what kind of problems was she having during that second and third trimester that led to concern? She was having bleeding and a lot of pain. Oh, my goodness. And uh, rectal bleeding and, and a lot of pain. And so, we were aware of that. We were monitoring it, uh, but there just wasn't an awful lot that we can do. They did an initial. Um, uh, procedure that just uncovered uh, a polyp or two and then also a little bit of a bleeding ulcer there and they thought that was the problem so we just kind of uh, um, were happy that it was that simple and uh, took some medicine for that but after she had the birth the pain went away for a couple of days and then it came back with a vengeance and unfortunately with the type of cancer that she had and the statistics said that she had about an eight percent chance of living five years so we went from this highest of highs as uh, grandparents and parents to uh, despair and, and worried about, are we going to be able to save this uh, child? And uh, it's funny because Stephanie was obviously very scared and, and was afraid to die. But more importantly, she didn't want to leave her child alone. Right. She wanted that child to have a mom and be able to raise, raise her and then also to... Um, know her and uh, she said i'm gonna have to start taking pictures because that's the only way the child's gonna know her <sighs> so as her father I, I decided that that wasn't acceptable and so one of the things i had uh, done is she had done doing a journal a baby journal to the child and i took that over then the next day and started recording everything that we were going through because i wanted her son to know exactly how hard she fought and the warrior that she became and how she how much she loved him and i wanted to try and capture as much of her essence as i could and so i started journaling this and uh, it was in the purpose in case we lost her so he would know his mom wow oh my goodness to be a new mom and to have that full range of emotions and then 
to shift your yeah. focus. And so after she received that diagnosis, what were the next steps? Well, it's interesting because the, um, we were all at the hospital together and I say, we, it was my wife and I, my wife, Colleen and myself, uh, her husband, Mark and uh, Stephanie, and then the, the newborn baby, Caden. And, uh, when we found out the news, I was actually up in her room taking care of Caden and everybody else was down her, with her for the procedure. So they found out a little bit earlier than I did. But when they came to the room, it was obvious that it was bad news. And so we really didn't know what to do. You know, all of a sudden we were told this uh, terrible, terrible news. Uh, we were all in shock and we were told we'd be seeing a surgeon that wanted to do surgery the next morning. We'll be seeing him in about 10, 15 minutes. Oh my God. And so it was really difficult for us to even kind of grasp what was going on, let alone knowing what to do about it. And fortunately, uh, I had a background uh, in related to medicine. I was in pharmaceuticals and my wife is a registered nurse. So we understood the language. We understood so much more than the average person, but we still didn't have a clue what to do. And we started realizing that every decision that we were going to make would may be a life or death decision. And so uh, we found the surgeon, the surgeon found us, spent about two hours with us. That was the beginning of us starting to understand the situation more. Um, we ended up uh, doing a little background information on him with some other physicians and such, and decided to go ahead and move forward with that. After the surgeon left, then, we had probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through because he left and we were all there in shock. And so we had, the baby didn't know what was going on. The baby was just being a baby. And that was a, a ray of sunshine in the room, basically. Uh, but the rest of us didn't know what to do. I thought about my business background and the importance of not dwelling on a challenge uh, and focusing on that but more importantly, starting to put together a plan and some action to go ahead and overcome it. And so I stood up literally in the room and I just said, each of us is really focused on this and how it's affecting us as individuals, me as a father, my wife as a mother, et cetera. Right. But Stephanie was the one that was at the epicenter of this. It was her life. And uh, I realized that instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, we really needed to stand up next to her. And so that's what we did. Uh, it was, uh, I guess I would use the analogy of a bully. If you're up against a bully and you don't know what to do, uh, it can be very, very scary. But when someone stands next to you and says, hey, I'm here for you, we're in this together, we're gonna overcome this, it changes things dramatically. And so that's what happened. And I said, we're going to go ahead and form a team, the five of us. And um, Kate, the baby Kate was an two. important part of the team. That's right, Caden too. And it's interesting because people like yourself, they, that's how they relax, react. But though so, so often this baby, this child offered us an escape. Of it was course. an oasis to go ahead and escape the drama and the stress and everything because he was oblivious and he did his cooing and smiling <laughs> and uh, all the things babies do. And it just provided so much comfort for all of us. The other thing with five of us on this team we always had a leader. We always had someone that was doing better than the others that would take over and lead the team as we needed to, as we move forward. 
And so slowly, slowly we found our way. And the good news is, I don't want to keep your listeners uh, wondering what's going on, but three and a half, well, we, we found, we put together a dream team is what I would say going to several oncologists before we found a right fit, going to several research centers so me, before we found so the right fit. let me stop fit. you first. So did you guys move forward with that surgery the next day? Yes, we did. And what was yeah. the goal, so, given it was stage four, what was the goal of that surgery specifically? Well, the surgeon gave us three options okay. and said that uh, uh, th these are the different things that he could do once he got in there. And uh, we wanted the one that was going to leave her in the most comfort, that was going to take care of as much of the problem as he could, as well as let her uh, live a normal life. And that's what he had suggested too. But he also said if he opens her up and finds additional cancer and other places and such, he may be forced just to close her up. And so that was really difficult to hear, but, um, so was he going we, in to take out all those polyps? I mean, you said thousands. I mean, he was going to go in and completely remove the uh, colon. Oh, okay. That's and what so, I wanted to know. Okay. So there's, uh, the next morning, three surgeons worked on her for about, I think six or seven hours. They removed the colon. Uh, they were, uh, they also uh, removed the appendix, some other things that were there that they just wanted to go ahead and try and clean up the area as much as they could took a margin of error and such, took out a lot of lymph nodes and, and that type of thing. And uh, they ended up taking out 37 uh, uh, lymph nodes. And I think of those uh, 27 of them were hot wow. and, uh, and uh, were cancerous. And so we knew that we had a lot left in front of us. Right. To stop my story for a moment, I want your listeners to understand when we went to the Mayo Clinic, that was one of the two institutions we worked with. The first thing the oncologist says, I will never be able to tell you that you're cured. But three and a half years later, that's exactly what he told us. You are cured. And so I won't, don't want people to wonder, you know, what happened and such. This is a, this is an uplifting story. It's, it's, there's a lot of drama in the beginning. It touches on all the emotions, but there's humor in the story. There's, um, hope. And that's what the doctor said when we, when he was, um, telling us that she was cured. We shared the fact that I had written this for my grandson and recorded everything that happened. I interviewed my family usually, uh, not every day, but as we went through things and I made notes uh, on this, uh, for this, uh, for this book that I was going to write for him. And uh, it captures so much emotion that when I Beck went back to edit it, I really needed to go ahead and put in a balance there of other things that were funny, humorous stories of our family and the silliness that we have in our lives and different things. So I think you find, I think that people will find um, not only hope, but also uh, some enjoyment out of the book. Yeah. That's what the doctor asked us to do. He said, please make this public. He said, the biggest problem that I have as far as supplying to my patients is hope. They all need to find a story of someone that overcame these amazing odds, these incredible odds, and how you guys did it and, and what you did and what you learned along the way. And so that's what we did. So to that point, she is done with that first initial surgery. She no longer yes. has a colon. Does she have a colostomy bag? Is that 
what the plan was? No, she didn't. They ended up leaving um, to try and have her uh, get her to the most normal lifestyle she could. They ended up leaving a stump of about six inches, okay. uh, a rectal stump that they could reattach the uh, small intestine to. Oh, wow. And so that, That's great. that was what we really wanted right. to do to go ahead and make her um, uh, as have as much of an enjoyable life as she could. Okay. And that's what he was able to do. So after the surgery, uh, now it's time for more treatment. And as you said, you interview yeah. the Mayo Clinic and, and, you know, and what was, what did the surgeon leave you with in terms of these are next steps before you guys actually moved forward and, and inter interviewed oncologists, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we really found him giving us the night before when we made the decision to form a team, something happened there and it, it became better. Uh, we started working on a plan. How can we move forward to attack this instead of being victims and sitting there? And that's what I told my daughter. I mean, she asked me point black, dad, am I going to die? And uh, that's probably the toughest moment I've ever lived through. And she and I are incredibly close. She is a daddy's girl. And um, I knew I ne needed to tell her the truth. And we both knew that we didn't know. And so that's what I told her. I said, sweetheart, I don't know. And we hugged and we cried. And, and uh, but it was the truth. And that haunted me for a long time, but it was the right thing. Then we went ahead and talked about forming the team. The next morning, the surgery took place. And that surgeon came out and said that the best possible outcome that we could have happened. He got, felt that he had gotten all the cancer. He had taken out the lymph nodes. Uh, there were some spots on the liver that he wasn't certain about, but he thought he sees those types of things often and we shouldn't. But then he really told us that we really need to get to an oncologist and take a look at doing chemotherapy, which kind of surprised us because we thought, well, you got it all. But he says it was microscopic that doesn't show up and things like that, yeah. so we needed to do that. Um, he, uh, the, actually the GI doctor had a suggestion for us. And so we went and he had made an appointment for us. We went to that physician and found out someone that was pretty much treating every one of his patients in the same way. He did not, uh, he had an algorithm that he used. And, uh, as we started asking questions, he became a little bit short with us. And, uh, his basic answer was, Hey, I know what I'm doing. I do this all the time. You don't have to worry about any of these things. So when we left that, we really didn't feel good about using that particular oncologist. Yeah. And so we started defining what it was that we needed. Uh, since she was so young and they said it was so unusual for someone at 27 years of age to go ahead and have uh, cancer like this, uh, we started thinking that we needed to be at a research center. And uh, fortunately with my job, uh, our company, I work for Bristol Myers Squibb, we have an oncology department. And so I started tapping into some of our resources there. And that's how this plan started coming together. We each had different things that we knew and, and that we could do well. And we started putting those things to work. So we, uh, I talked to the oncologist. Eventually? Uh, the first, the first research center that we went to, I don't name because it really wasn't a good fit for us. It's a place though, that a lot of people find miracles. It just didn't work for us. Uh, no, but they were able to you, go ahead. Where did you eventually land though? So you can't name the Oh, place. I see. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we, we ended up in two different locations. We ended up at the University of Kansas uh, Cancer Center here in Kansas City. And uh, a physician, a oncologist there, Dr. Baranda. And I again tapped into my oncology department and I said, 
We need someone that's young, that's on the cutting edge of research. We need someone that is going to identify with my daughter and the fact that she's young and she just had a child. We need someone that's going to be aggressive and that can really connect with her. And uh, I talked to some local management and they said, have we got the oncologist for you? <laughs> and so they gave us her name and my wife set up the appointment. And that's exactly what we found. Dr. Baranda spent two hours with us and the first half hour was talking to us and building a rapport and a relationship with us and talking about the child and talking about Stephanie. And then she started laying out a plan as to what she was gonna do. The first oncologist we talked to said that this isn't a big deal. You'll come by every two weeks. We're gonna go ahead and have you for an hour and a half and run you through this and, and we'll go from there. She laid out a plan that was going to be seven or eight hours in the clinic to go ahead and make sure that uh, they ran all the potential medications that would help her with the side effects and then ease into these drugs. Yeah. And so she would have eight hours of chemo and then she'd actually leave with a chemo pump that would still go ahead and put uh, more medication over the next day and a half. And then we would take care of that. And following the doctor, the staff there were just incredibly loving, incredibly caring people. And when we left that day, we found the right fit. We, and that's what we always called it. Is this the right fit? Is this good for us? Is this going to do what we want? We really believed in that. As things progressed, then we needed additional surgery. There were some other things that started happening and such. And we wanted to go to a uh, center that really specialized in cancer research as well as cancer treatment beyond chemotherapy. And we found that in the Mayo Clinic. Nice. And we found a great oncologist there with Dr. Um, uh, Grothy. And again, a very loving, kind person. And it was just a really wonderful fit. You, you kind of just glossed um, over, and I don't want to gloss over it, about as more things happened and another surgery. So, so yeah. what happened? Well, when we talked to uh, Dr. Baranda, she said, you know, I'm a little concerned about the liver, the spots on the liver. And what she was able to do is do some additional scans. And she said that's changed. It seems to continue to change. And she didn't like the shape of them. And she said, we really need to take a look at that. So when we went to the first, on, uh, the first research center, Dr. Branda happened to know the individuals there. And she suggested they do a biopsy. So when we were at the first research center, we did get some things accomplished. It wasn't a great fit for us long-term, but they talked about having a very aggressive therapy and they came up with the, with the drug re recommendations and they also did the biopsy. What uh, did the we biopsy were there for show? about a week. Uh, the, we didn't know right away. We left there after about a week and they didn't have the results back yet. And so when we did find that out, they did find that they were cancerous. And so that was a, certainly a concern. So the so cancer Dr. had Miranda metastasized her. to the liver, which yeah. is really and that's common what made her stage with that four. kind of cancer. Yes. Okay. So yeah. then you went. The good news is they didn't find any of the spots. So then you went so to the Mayo Clinic. Good. Well, then we came back to Dr. Miranda and started the chemotherapy. Got it. She wanted to do six rounds of chemotherapy before we did any additional surgery to try and reduce those tumors on the liver as much as she could so she could save, we could save the liver as much as we could. Right. And so throughout that, we were looking at various physicians and we really kind of found a home at the Mayo Clinic. And talk to us a little bit about the, the chemotherapy, how long did it last? How did Stephanie do? And then, you know, if she did have an additional surgery, what was that like? Well, 
We found the, the first round of chemotherapy was interesting because it did showed up the side effects immediately. Halfway through the day, she went to use the restroom and uh, she was attached to a lot of IV poles, right. and, you know, two different poles, different things and such. So I helped her get in the bathroom. And uh, then when she was finished, I, I was helping her with the poles and she was washing her hands and she put her hands in the water and just jerked them back. And she says, oh my God, that's the coldest thing I've ever felt. And it, and it was really, really painful. And I touched the water and it was room temperature. And so those side effects started hitting her very, very quickly. She ended up going through, uh, let's see, I guess about six rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, there were two weeks between each one. Uh, the staff was wonderful the way they, they did it. They did it very slowly to try and keep the things down. Uh, we often had the baby with us. Most of the time we had the child with us and we, uh, they had their baby fix. She <laughs> did, the baby would disappear for a while as all the nurses enjoyed the child. But uh, then as we uh, continued, they always gave us the big chemo room. So it had a bed there, there as well as the chair. And it was a little bit easier uh, for the baby and, and for us to take care of the baby and such. So as uh, you know uh, from talking to cancer survivors, chemo can be very rough. And Dr. Branda said one thing. She said, I'm going to go ahead and take you as close to death as I can without losing you to go ahead and kill as much of this cancer as we can. Wow. And then we're going to bring you back That's again. Honest. And so it was a very aggressive, yeah, very honest. And she said, the good things that we, and that she pointed out the good things that we had on our side. The fact that she was 27, she was strong. Otherwise, she was very healthy. She was a strong person. And she loved Stephanie's attitude because Stephanie, starting with that cancer, starting with a surgery, said, I'm going to do everything that I can to live for my child and to live for my baby and to save myself. And so Miranda really liked that, um, uh, that attitude. And she said, so we're going to go ahead and do this together and we'll go ahead and alter things as we need to. And uh, throughout that time, we had some setbacks. Uh, we had some side effects as people often have. And beyond the neuropathy and the coldness and things like that, uh, we ended up having a blood clot. And uh, there she had a massive blood clot in one of her legs. Uh, we were going to bed that night. It didn't look right. She was complaining about pain. Her leg was mottled. And um, we talked about it and weren't sure what to do. And so everybody else was in bed. And so I gave her a kiss goodnight and we went to bed. And I laid there for a minute. And for some reason, I just felt this wasn't right. We needed to do more. So I went back into her room and I took a little closer look and uh, I con was concerned when I saw the modeling and got my, my nurse out of the bed and uh, we uh, called Dr. Baranda and Dr. Baranda told us to get to, the quick, to get to the closest emergency room as quickly as we can. So people understand what is, what is modeling, like what does that actually look like? Yeah, modeling is when you've got, um, uh, it's like a blotchiness, a white and red uh, like spots. It's like a honeycomb also in different colors. And it shows that the blood flow isn't uh, what it should be. Wow. And uh, she was getting sweat, swelling and things like that. So that's really what kind of, we got to the emergency room. Uh, there were other people there. They said, yeah, we understand. Uh, you need us right away. We ended up waiting for an hour, which was driving us absolutely crazy because there were people there with the flu and different things that were being seen. 
and we kept trying to get this across. And once we finally got to a physician, within 30 seconds, she says, oh my God, you've got a blood clot. We need to go ahead and move on this really quickly. And um, it was one of those things. Um, they brought in specialists, they brought in people to go ahead and help us right away. But we were told pretty quickly that if we would have waited another three or four hours, we'd have lost her. And uh, so that was- that cancer would have given really her a fast us. pass. You know what I mean? Like the C yeah, word should give you a fast felt, pass. <laughs> Right. But I think I think that some of these ERs are just so busy and yeah. they're so used to every person coming in and saying, I'm the worst thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And um, uh, two weeks later, we were back in another emergency room. What happened? Uh, Stephanie came up. Uh, we, we got the blood clot somewhat under control. We went back home and then she ended up getting sepsis. Oh and God. here again, we were warned by having a... Um, by having a fever that came on quickly. And thank God, you know, our, our faith was such a strong component throughout this. And so I say, thank God, because when this happened, he got had given us the tools that we needed. We had a nurse in the family. Uh, we had uh, some of the experience that I had. And so when we saw this, uh, when we saw this fever building, again, we talked to Dr. Brand. Again, she told us to get to uh, emergency room as quickly as we could. We didn't go to the same one, <laughs> and, but we were still, to, but we still ended no. up waiting. Listeners, they went to a <laughs> yeah. different ER the next time. That's right. But we ended up going through the same thing. It was 45 minutes to an hour wait again. And they determined very, very quickly that she had sepsis. And they also said the same thing. We had an ID come in and he says, if you'd have been here three, four hours later, we would have lost her. And so these two things that happened really weighed on our minds and it was really troublesome and it was really increased our fear and such. And then we started trying to change our perspective a little bit. And instead of saying, why did these things happen to us? We started saying, thank God that we got there early enough. Right. Thank God that the warning signs were clear enough for us that we got. And so then we started thinking, well, God didn't put us into this problem. God helped put us out of this problem. And that changing our attitude really made all the difference in the world. Wow. So that good. was what our first round of chemo was. Wow. After that, after six v rounds. Very eventful. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that happened. So we ended up then uh, choosing to go to the Mayo Clinic and uh, do the surgery. And um, uh, again, we got, had a great, uh, Dr. Quay was our surgeon. She was a great surgeon, again, connected with um, uh, my daughter and the family. And- um, What was the second surgery exactly? Um, they wanted to go in and remove the uh, tumors on the liver. Okay. And so uh, the tumors had stopped growing to a great extent because of the chemotherapy, but we needed to go in there and remove them. And again, Dr. Quay gave us several different options. She was very concerned because uh, the, the way the tumors had set up, they were in both lobes of the, of the liver. So she couldn't just remove one. Right. She was having to go ahead and look at doing parts and parts of the liver here, parts of the liver there. And that made her really uncomfortable. So she wanted to do something called RFA, radio frequency ablation. Yeah. And this was something that was a little bit newer 17 years ago. And so we didn't quite understand it, but she explained it and, and told us that a radiologist would also be there and they would go ahead and uh, they would try to burn out these areas to save as much of the liver as possible. Yeah. 
But that was one of three options that she had going in, and we really wouldn't know what she would be doing until she got in and opened her up. Uh, the surgery went well. They did the RFA, and actually, they actually took some of the samples out and felt that the cancer was probably dead from the chemotherapy before the RFA. But we burned out those areas, and she said, I'm so excited because I don't oftentimes get an opportunity to tell patients good news. Your original surgeon did an exceptional job. She said, um, usually when we have other surgeons doing our work, we have to go ahead and clean things up. He had done such a great job on the margin and everything else. And she said, I checked all of your organs. She said she, she, she lifted out the organs that she could to check them and to manipulate them. And these things are may were very cringeworthy as far as us they as a are, family. Right? But she, when she talks about bringing the uh, the uh, small intestine out and feeling oh it and God. looking at them, and said, I think you're glad yeah, she did. But yeah, you're right. You're like, oh, oh. Yeah. So anyway, the the good news, and I don't mean to get graphic with you, is is the good news is that everything went really smoothly and we we're able to go back to chemo. Uh, in the meantime, since she was stage four, we were able to add more additional uh, medications to the chemotherapy. Uh, and uh, she went through one round. Uh, the doctor felt that she'd like to use the latest drug, the one that had just been approved, uh, to go ahead and maybe do another round. And so she did another, um, I think, six uh, rounds of chemo again. Uh, and then that was kind of where we were at with the surgery. And she had other minor surgeries, like putting a port in and doing right. things like that, that a lot of people identify with. But um, things went on for a long time. It was three and a half years before we got the diagnosis that we did that she was cured, which was um, shocking to us. Uh, we were spending, when we'd go see Dr. Grothy, we would usually spend an hour or more with him. He was such a kind and gentle man, and he always answered all of our questions and such. And so we were going through the normal things that we did. Here's the tests that we did. Here's what we saw and, and, and things like that. And he said, okay, well, he says, I want to continue to monitor her and your next appointment will be in three months, but um, I consider her cured. And he stood up and he shook our hands and we walked out. And halfway back to the waiting room, I turned to Steffi and I said, did you hear him say something about cure? Because we, we were all trying to you know, understand this right. because this didn't make sense. And uh, because there was another time that we were there a year and a half before that he said, we found another spot. We need to go back in. And so we did that and it found out that it was nothing and that type of thing. But we'd had the full floor pulled out from underneath us once before. And so we got into the waiting room and we started discussing it. And yeah, every one of us had heard that he said cured. And they said, well, he said he'd never be able to tell us that. And slowly this set in and it went from us understanding to making a spectacle of ourselves in the, in the waiting room, to be honest with you. I picked up my daughter and swung her around and we Aww. were laughing and we were crying and we were just, you know, again, the five of us were all there. And at this time, uh, Peanut had grown up, Caden had grown up a little bit. And it was like, he turned to uh, Nana and he says, Nana, how come mom's crying? And uh, he said, those are, those are tears of happiness, yeah, sweetheart. Happy She's cured. This is all going to be getting better and such. But we made a spectacle of ourselves. And it was funny <laughs> because I looked out and it's a large waiting room uh, with a lot of different areas to it. And so many people were watching us. But they all had, and I felt guilty 
uh, because I didn't know what news they were getting and what they were there for. But yet they all had smiles on their face. Everybody you know, wants as you that get news, into right? uh, fighting for cancer. Everybody right. wants that news. It's a cancer community yeah. and they all want everyone to do well. Yeah. And that's what I saw. And so as we walked off, I said a little prayer for all the people that were in the waiting room, hoping they could get the same news that we did. And and we just continued down the road. So there are a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of drama and such, but there were a lot of wonderful things that happened. I couldn't believe the people that came out of the woodwork, friends, family, people that didn't even know us that helped us along our journey. And that's one of the important things about this book. The doctor said, write it so other people could have hope. And we're hoping that, that exactly, that's exactly what happens. And, and so far- And how is Stephanie doing today? She's doing wonderful. Her, she's healthy. Uh, think of this, she, the, her child is 17 years old. He's a junior in high school. She's healthy. He's healthy. Uh, Does he remember what anything a at all? He was so young. You know, it's funny. If you ask him what his first memories were, they were in these institutions, in, in the uh, treatment rooms really? when he's playing with toys on the floor and while we're in treatment rooms wow. and things like that which is, um, my daughter doesn't like that being his first uh, thoughts, but- That's the way it uh, is, that's okay. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've, we, um, he's, he's- uh, He's the he's reason mature, she yeah. found out that she, what she has, <laughs> right? Well, there's, there's truth in that, yes, because they talked about that too. So they said the pregnancy, um, probably the hormones went ahead and, and advanced the cancer faster, it was growing faster. And it may have given us the chance to go ahead and to treat her. Yeah. So it's funny, whenever he gets in trouble, the first thing he reminds her is, hey, you know, I saved your life. Oh, he doesn't. Uh, so you can't be that oh. bad at me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's adorable. So, I kind of I like that. Yeah. Um, on that note, Michael, what is one thing you wish you had known at the beginning? Because as you said earlier, you know, you came into this with 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. So you had that background yes. and all those connections. Your wife is a nurse. So you did come probably much more equipped than the average person. But is there anything? I would agree. Is there anything you wish you'd known at the beginning? Well, it was interesting because we, one of the first things that we asked uh, in each one of the institutions that we're at, each one of the oncologists we talked to, each of the research centers that we went to is, can you give us a guide on what to kind of expect and what to do and how to go ahead and deal with some of this? And we were blown away by the fact that we asked the question a dozen or more times. And the answer that we got was no, we don't know of anything. We really don't. Eventually we found with the book, uh, Chicken Soup for the Cancer Soul. And basically that's filled with short stories okay. about people that survived and, and, and things like that. It was very helpful to give us some hope, but it still didn't leave us much of a track to run on. Right. And that's one of the things that I wish we would have had. And one of the reasons that we brought the book public, the story public from just something to share with our grandson to share with the public. We wanted to share the things that we learned along the way. Now, every path is different. Every cancer is different. Every patient is different. But there were things that we learned along the way. For example, I started writing some life lessons to my grandson uh, when we ran into this, um, uh, the GI doc that really said, you know, when we asked him about it, could it be cancer? And says, no, 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 27 year olds don't get cancer. That's not a problem at all. And the fact that Every, every other physician that we talked to, the other uh, connections that we had all said that he was a wonderful doctor, a wonderful guy, but you know what, he's human. 
And uh, we're all susceptible to making mistakes and having judgments and such. And so that was a life lesson that I put in the book uh, to Caden uh, when we talked about that the, we weren't, didn't get to feel like he was a good fit and we weren't sure what to do and that maybe this should have been handled a little bit differently. But we didn't blame him so much. I wanted Caden to understand more about what he's up against as a physician. And working with physicians all my adult life, it was really easy to see that they're not all perfect. We set them up on this pedestal because of their education and their skill, but the fact is they're human too. Of and so if you're not finding what you're looking for, if you're not finding it with one person, don't be afraid to go on and look for it with yeah, someone amen else. Amen to that, right? It's so important. Michael, if you could only do one thing to change healthcare, I don't want to say change. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Well, first of all, I think daddy's girl should be in every, uh, every physician's office so people have a ray of hope. But uh, I have had the opportunity to travel the United States with my job and to work with health systems all over the country. And uh, what I found in both uh, the University of Kansas, their, their cancer center there, the warmth, the love, the caring, I think is something that should be really duplicated and it isn't uh, throughout the country. At Mayo Clinic, we found something else that was very special. They had a team approach to things and a respect among their colleagues. There was no ego. It was incredible. And I'd never experienced that before in any of the hundreds of healthcare systems that I'd worked with and, and uh, uh, dealt with. And by that, I mean, when you had people coming in, we had some scares at Mayo. We had some things the first night she was uh, uh, having a difficult time with her pain. As we had added more pain, the, it became uh, uh, taxing for her lungs. And within uh, probably five minutes, we had five different departments show up and working as a team. And there was no, hey, get out of my way. Hey, this is my thing. The doctors treated the nurses like they treated the other doctors. The uh, techs that came in were so efficient. They were so used to working with each other. And it was just incredible to sit back and watch and see how fast they were able to get this situation under control and put her mind at rest and, and get it under control. So I would say that it's that loving, caring attitude and the teamwork approach. And uh, Mayo is different. Mayo is, um, I would special. say, cash rich. I, I work with Mayo. They are very special and it allows them to do different. You did, you're familiar with Mayo. Yeah. It is different. It is incredibly different. And, and we called the University of Kansas and Mayo our home away from home. Oh. And when we got there, it wasn't like, oh God, we got to go to another cancer center. It was like, ah, we're here, we're safe. And that's I'm how they made us I'm going to share that with the doctors I know at Mayo. I think they would really love to yeah. hear that because yeah. that's my experience with them. But yeah. All right, Michael, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Um, I will try, yes. Okay. And this is all about you. It's not about Stephanie. It's about okay. you. Beach, desert, or mountains? Uh, lake. <laughs> I need to put that in there. I'm sorry. Beach Boys. Yeah, I need Lake. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. Me too. What is... Got a theme here with Beach. Yeah. What is one <laughs> word that best describes you? Um, caring. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Um, 
I, it's really an interesting question. I've kind of struggled with it. Santana is one of my favorite groups, and I picked a song out of there. But Enya has one that's um, I don't I can't tell you the title right off the hand. It's it's about in the forest, and it's musical, and it just talks about um, letting go and and that type of thing. And to me, it would just set the setting for heaven. Aww. And uh, that's so that's what I would I would do. All right. What about the last meal you want to eat? Uh, homemade pizza. My son-in-law makes inc incredible homemade pizzas. And the last person or people you want to see? My family. My family. My team of five and, and my son. My son wasn't a, a, as involved as the team. He did a lot of things behind the scenes and he helped us in so many ways. But uh, my immediate family, that's what I want to see. And the last words you will speak? Um, hello, God. And aside from Cancer U, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And, and this is where you tell us how we can get your book. Um, the thing that I would suggest to anybody that's fighting cancer is to tap into all the resources that you have around you. We were fortunate. We had family and we had friends. Not everyone has that. But there are people in your life that love you and reach out to them and bring them close and have, have them help you, ask for their help. If you don't have that, ask the doctors and the nurses. There's all so many uh, groups out there, support groups for cancer that can help you, that can go ahead and provide different things. Find people that are a good fit. Find doctors that you believe in and that you trust. And then do the work as a, as a survivor, as a cancer person, as a, as a uh, person that's fighting cancer. You need to do the work. We ran into so many people that weren't willing to do the chemo or they weren't willing to go ahead and do the additional surgeries or whatever it was, and they fought it along the way. That makes it so much harder on the caregivers, but it also makes it a lot harder on you. Stephanie always took the hardest road the most aggressive road because she had to go ahead and live. And so do the work and uh, change your attitude of one that you're going to succeed and believe and try and provide hope. And how can people get in touch with you? You can reach, um, my author website is authormichaelschnabel.com and it's author and Michael and then S-C-H-N-A-B-E-L.com if you want to see more about uh, uh, me or the book or my daughter. There's some pictures on there and different media things that we've done. But the book is available in a, in a couple of weeks. By the time this airs, the book will be out there. Fantastic. And it's available at any bookstore worldwide in English. And uh, we're working on some other things as far as getting it into an audio. There's an ebook that's already out. And uh, we'll try to do an audio version and some other things as we're moving forward. One last thing that I'd like to share is I found out later that there's a lot of daddy's girls out there. So if you're going to Google it, you need to do daddy's girl by Michael Schnabel, <laughs> or you do the full, full title, which is daddy's girl, a father, his daughter, and the deadly battle that she overcame. Then you'll get to the right spot. Well, we'll make sure we put the link to the Amazon. So we'll make sure we Great. get that. Yeah. Yeah. Michael. And we did it in paperback version to keep the cost down. So go ahead. So it would be able to reach more people and people would be able to easily afford it. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and Stephanie's story with us. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You're easy to work with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. 
If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.